News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Interesting topic with our Raji Sohal this morning. Do you want the government to just give you money to help you deal with the rising cost of, well, everything these days? Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. I mean, who doesn't want more money, right? <laughs> We'd all like True. more money. But people forget this, Simi. It's our money. It's not free. And I know with, gosh, this record inflation, like people are hurting. And NDP's uh, Jagmeet Singh said, well, people are hurting too much. It's too much for gas, for groceries, for rent. And so, hey, maybe everyone should be issued $1,000, a one-time kind of inflation relief payment to Canadians who are struggling to afford these things. Everyone is struggling to afford these things. I feel of two minds about these kind of one-off payments. I don't think they do what they're meant to do because it's just one time. And so I think for some people who are struggling that like it's not it's not relief. They're like, okay, I got a little bonus. Let's like enjoy ourselves for a minute. Um, And I don't think everybody like across the board, not everyone is as in need of that one thousand dollars. And I think it's Hmm. not sustainable. It's not sustainable. So when we go to these like one-off solutions, we're not fixing any systemic problems. And, you know, we look at what happened with the uh, ICBC uh, one-off payment for gas to help us. Did it really make us make a dent? Like, did it make a dent in anyone's decision? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This this was a very popular thing. I think Alberta Premier Ralph Klein was very big on this back in the day, where he would send out these rebate checks. You know, when Alberta was rolling in money, and so yeah. we we even got it. I think once, maybe twice. I think Gordon Campbell gave out some checks like that. And so this debate has been around for a long time. And what it assumes is that we would take this thousand dollars, put it in some account somewhere, and then use it to offset the increase. You know, in a perfect world, that's what we would do. Like, oh, right. my gas bill is that much extra. I'm going to use this to pay that gas bill this time. That's not what people do, right? They just put it yeah. into a bank account and just disappears into whatever is in there. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, when I've talked to people who got the CERB, and we know the CERB uh, was abused by many, many people, and we know it also helped a lot of people. I actually had one listener get in touch at one point who told me that they turned that CERB money. He said he was, um, he said, I'm not even low income. I consider myself extremely poor. I don't always make ends meet. It's always like dicey. He got, he got the CERB payment, Simi, and he turned it around, invested it. And was sitting on, you know, almost $80,000 at the end of the CERB payments. Yes, but where's that money now, Raji? (laughs) With the the way markets have gone this year, right? right? Great question. But I think like what what I do appreciate about these attempts for the one-off payments is that, okay, they will help some people. I don't think they're going to help everybody as much. They're not going to do as you say. Um, But I think that ultimately, yeah, families are hurting. Single mothers are hurting. Low-income folks are suffering. That maybe the government could do something that would actually change things for them, change things substantially and systemically rather than just like these one-off, like uh, I call them birthday gifts because 
<laughs> your birthday comes once a year. People give you presents and you do you enjoy that day and then it's kind of done. And that's what I think yes. a lot of payments tend to do. I think that's true. So this is something that the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been calling for, as you pointed out. And, but he hasn't really specified where it would go, like who would qualify for this. Is it everybody over a certain age or how would they give it? Is it what about people who make a lot of money who aren't hurting? Do they still get this too? I don't know. So many questions that I have. Yeah. And I think part of this is also strategic. Uh, some folks are saying that he's not being critical enough of the liberal government, that he's not pressuring Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on enough issues. And I think like this is just like a way to just like play softball criticism with the liberal leader. And uh, I think that might be what's going on here as well. Maybe. So you are not a fan of that. I know some people, they call it, what are they? Oh, they used to call them stimulus payments. That's what they used to right. call them, right? So now we're calling them what? Inflation payments? Yeah, inflation payments. You know, I, there's other things that also that I think workplaces can do. For example, one of my friends uh, runs a, he's a computer programmer. He runs a business where other people code for him as well for other companies to fix their software and this kind of thing. And he had a meeting with the other leaders, uh, the top management of his uh, of his company, and said, "Okay, people are going to start to hurt uh, financially, and they're going to leave. What are we going to do to help ease the burden for people?" So, like, they had a meeting about how to problem solve around inflation, so it doesn't hurt their employees too hard. I thought, wow, that's that's pretty pro- proactive, and uh, maybe more companies could be doing things like that. I guess so. Yeah. So this brings up a lot of questions about whether people want this. Like I know we're hurting people's budgets are very, very tight right now. We're being squeezed. But does does anybody think that getting a thousand dollar check or a thousand dollar relief payment from the government would help? I would like to hear from people on that. Simi at CKNW.com. What do you think people would say to that? I think Simi, most folks would agree that the ones who really are in need of this cash give it to them. Uh, and that no, not absolutely everybody needs it. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't we all pr- appreciate something that was more sustainable that would help the folks who need it the most rather than just these one off one time payments. Hmm, I wonder how I just don't know where the cutoff is for that. Right? How do you decide who gets it who doesn't? It's an interesting topic for sure. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. So Raji Sohal there talking about how the, the federal NDP has proposed that the government should be sending out relief payments to people to help with the high cost of gas and groceries. And they believe that they're arguing that people deserve a $1,000 one-time relief payment from the federal government. What do you think? Is this a good idea? That's a pretty big relief payment. And will people put it towards, you know, helping with their groceries, helping with their gas, or, you know, we've got enough bills already piling up, it'll just go towards paying off some debts. Would this be helpful? So you tell me, boy, a year ago, we were sweltering under the heat dome. These couple of days in that late part of June of 2021 were the hottest that we've ever had. And nobody wants to go back to that. But one of the ways that, you know, we've talked about coping with future heat domes or really intense heat waves is air conditioning, right? We've heard even BC Hydro say more and more people are installing air conditioning as a way to cope. 
Well, it turns out that that might not be the best way to deal with, you know, increasing heat levels, at least according to some researchers. Joining us now is Adam Resnick, an assistant professor of environmental systems at the UBC School of Architecture. Adam, thank you for being here. Thanks, Amy. Good morning. Do you think more and more people are doing this, installing air conditioning? Well, uh, for sure. And, and you know, no one can be blamed for that. We, we have a pretty uh, shocking memory to sort of uh, remind us of uh, uh, what we need when it's at least 40 plus degrees. And, and really at those temperatures, when we're talking about the extreme heat, we might face a lot maybe every year, but every few years, there's not going to be too many technologies that can't do it other than air conditioning. But there's a difference between, you know, air conditioning being used for the extreme and reliance on air conditioning for, say, what we just faced in the last uh, week, which was hot, uh, but not the type of heat that can't be mitigated with other measures. And, and really where I'm coming from is a lot about trying to advocate that the city and our governments don't get too quickly to saying air conditioning is our only solution here for uh, the future heat we're going to face. Right. Okay. So then what is what are some of the other solutions? Well, I, I mean, we can look to several, you know, 100 million people living in the world and in Europe and, and really elsewhere, billions that have coped with heat for much longer than we have with measures that keep people comfortable well before they need uh, AC. If we look at the Mediterranean, uh, Southern Europe, which is kind of the climate we're already there and, and we're getting closer to sort of the Southern Mediterranean already for, for decades, measures like having shading on the exterior of buildings, lightly colored buildings and paving more vegetation that uh, provides more evaporative cooling and shading to buildings. Those are commonplace. I mean, they're commonplace even as we travel Europe as as tourists. And we need to think about whether we want to bring more of those measures here, which I think we do, uh, and want to bring them maybe more quickly than jumping over all of these measures right to AC and keeping the windows shut. Is now the time, do you think, to have this discussion? Because you're right, people are deciding, I don't ever want to go through that again. Absolutely. And, and I mean, we need to have a, you know, a nuanced discussion about, you know, existing buildings versus new buildings, um, the elderly and the vulnerable versus the, the rest of us and extreme heat versus heat. And, and for sure, when we're talking about this extreme heat that really you know, put a, a fear into us as a sort of a culture, that there are going to be difficulties with sort of mitigating 46 degrees heat with, with shading. So AC for the extreme conditions is needed, and we need to figure out a way that the most vulnerable in our in our cities can reach cool centers in those types of extremes. For the other conditions, we need the city to absolutely accelerate and incentivize new buildings and existing buildings being retrofitted with alternatives. We need more ceiling fans in our buildings. We Many of us probably have grown up with them. Uh, they've gone by the wayside. Why wouldn't we have more ceiling fans in our buildings as opposed to closing the windows and going to AC? There's a whole variety of measures that if the city would be and, and provincial government would be much more forceful with these as it seems they've been with air conditioning, we probably would have better and healthier buildings, which is the end goal that we're all looking for. Right, because I'm thinking about in places, you know, if everybody, anybody's ever vacationed in warm places, they don't all have air conditioning. A lot of them do rely on kind of open windows and trade winds. Absolutely. And, you know, I would tell my students that we often look at buildings not being that much different than cars. You know, a lot of luxury elements and luxury cars somehow get sort of uh, eventually trickled down into cars for, for the middle classes that started with airbags and, and other features. And, and we see them more with buildings. Imagine any movie where you see kind of very rich people. They're not living in homes with like airtight windows. It always seems to be tropical and free-flowing and open air. And that's because as humans, we aspire for that type of connection. 
we want a little bit more fresh air. We want a bit more connection to the outside. And there are a wide variety of technologies well established in Europe and other parts of the world that have made buildings like that for the middle classes and those even who are more vulnerable. And we just need to see more of those in Vancouver. The climate is changing here, but we're not going to become Florida. We're not going right to the equator. We're going to climates that have a lot of experience dealing with the heat without AC, and we should emulate some of the measures they've implemented there. Is it too late to do that, though? Because as you pointed out, it seems to me that everybody is is much more interested in kind of, if they're going to retrofit, it's going to be because they're going to put air conditioning in the building. Well, for sure. I mean, with with new buildings, that's where I'm more disappointed about how quickly the requirements on new buildings have gone to to AC. I think the requirements now in Vancouver will be that buildings must be able to provide at least 26 degrees Celsius indoors. Meanwhile, in this last week in Spain, uh, in Italy, sorry, they've done the exact opposite, making sure that no building is any cooler than 26 degrees because they're dealing with with, uh, uh, concerning conditions there with energy. For existing buildings, a different story. Yes, it's a lot harder to sort of retrofit existing buildings in the way that you can completely control a new building, but it's not impossible and it's also not cost prohibitive. A lot of, in condos in Vancouver, a lot of the envelopes, the windows will need to be replaced in the next decade or two. We're looking at you, Yale Town, and all of the condos that were built in the late 90s and early 2000s. This is a strategic moment to think differently about what that renovation will have to be which is borne by the residents anyway is it just going to be another window or is it a window with a shade on the outside that's one ceiling fans again if you're replacing your ceiling luminaire or if you're dealing with strata or or a community that's replacing them on mass maybe get more ceiling fans inside the building before we jump to ac changing the way our windows are openable why we still have this fear of windows that only open five degrees which i remember living in uh, downtown vancouver that can change uh, with safety uh, and provides more fresh air indoors. There's a whole basket of measures that we can still uh, look towards. It is more challenging than existing buildings, but we can still implement them well before we jump right to AC. And I'm sure anyone who's bought uh, an AC to deal with the heat, and of course they're fair to do so, uh, probably also knows how inefficient and generally unhealthy it feel sometimes to close all your windows and having those indoor AC units running and recirculating air indoors. The more we can advocate these retrofits that happen on the envelope and bring more fresh air inside, the better we're going to be for it. How do we make that call personally, Adam? Like, you know, we we just think that, okay, we just need some relief from the heat, but how do we decide what the right fit is for us? Well, that's that's the challenge. I, there, there can't be right now in, in the market, I mean, consumers can't be Uh, blamed at the slightest for going to AC. I mean, it's hot. We want to feel comfortable. It seems the only things on the shelves right now are kind of tabletop fans, which we probably have, uh, and AC. And so why wouldn't we go for AC? The issue really is coming from how we're advocating the way our government is incentivizing alternatives to come here. We don't have the suppliers, say, for exterior shading the way you would have it in Europe. We don't have a lot of the measures here and ability to buy them easily here and see them on existing buildings here the way you would see them in Europe. That's really in the hands of government to incentivize these alternatives, to deploy them readily. It's not like we need researchers like me developing new technologies. They've been around for decades and well commercialized. We need to bring vendors here, have more companies establish themselves here to sell to us. And then as consumers, we have more choice. So no one can be blamed right now for seeing AC as the only solution. It's the only one on the shelf. It just sad that it is so because there's a wide world of alternatives that exist and just need to be brought here. You know what? You have certainly given me a lot to think about. Adam, thank you so much. Thank you very much.
So in case you haven't heard, if you want to go and visit Bunsen Lake, there is a new parking pass system in effect. And that means you have to make a reservation one day in advance. It's not transferable, but you need to say, hey, I'm going to Bunsen Lake and you need to have this pass. So this past weekend was the first weekend that this was in effect and it did cause a bit of confusion there. Parking lot was not full by any stretch. And people who did show up without the parking pass were turned away. So what kind of bumps are going on here? How is this going to get figured out? Joining us now is BC Hydro spokesperson Kyle Donaldson. Good morning, Kyle. Hi, Simi. Good morning. How are you this morning? I am good. Thank you. So it didn't go perfectly this past weekend. What do you think some of the bumps were? Well, I just want to maybe correct you just for a quick sec here. The parking system actually launched. It came into effect on Monday. So over the weekend, uh, it was business as usual with the with the previous system, which was first come, first serve. And uh, when you look at how the weekend went, uh, essentially it was a it was a very hot weekend, obviously. And uh, it, it, it as what usually happened with the previous system, uh, the gates were closed uh, very early on in the day, and the parking lot was shut down. So uh, it was it was a, it was a typical it was a typical weekend that we would expect at Bunsen. Uh, this new parking reservation system officially kicked in yesterday. So Monday was the first uh, day of this. And uh, overall, the goal has been to try and reduce traffic congestion in the village of Anmore, as that often gets backed up on a very hot, sunny day like it was yesterday. And there was no congestion. Uh, You do mention that, uh, you know, there were some uh, empty spaces in the parking lot yesterday. We're very much aware of that. And uh, I can tell you that about 40 percent of people who made a reservation yesterday did not show up for it at Bunsen Lake. So, Uh, As this is a pilot project, we're going to be working on it throughout the summer to make some tweaks to the system, Uh, but we're very much aware of of, uh, how things went yesterday and we're committed to working on it. Okay, so 40% of the people didn't show up then. That would be very frustrating for people who do show up without a reservation and they see those empty spots. Yeah, and we understand that. And, you know, change is something that uh, is difficult to embrace for a lot of people. Uh, So what what we're trying to do and what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks and months is trying to educate the public just on this new system. You know, we have uh, signs up in Bunsen Lake and uh, we've been, uh, you know, speaking with media like yourself and we've been uh, trying to get the word out there. So uh, for the most part, people who showed up to Bunsen Lake yesterday showed up with a reservation. Yes, there were some people who were turned away. Uh, but as you mentioned, you, you uh, for, the, for this trial period throughout the summer, you have to go onto our website, bchydro.com slash Bunsen. And you can uh, make a reservation for either a morning, an afternoon, or an all-day pass. And when you show up to Bunsen Lake, our staff will greet you there, and they will uh, they'll let you in if you have uh, the proof of the reservation. If you don't have a reservation, you're unfortunately turned away. Okay, so how are you going to deal with the issue, though, of people not showing up, even if they've made a reservation? Uh, well, that's, that's a question for people on the project team, uh, and I guess that's something that we'll be uh, addressing today. Uh, but again, it's, it's a pilot project, and as the summer continues, we're able to make some tweaks to the system. And again, we're committed to making this, uh, we're committed to making this work, and we're committed to also being a good neighbor for the village of Anmore. Okay, and so how, like, will Hydro be there for the next little while? I know that, that Hydro crews were on the site yesterday, you know, letting people know you can't come in unless you have the pass. Is that going to stay in place for a while? Absolutely. Yep. The staff will be there throughout the entire summer. And this pilot project goes until the end of the September long weekend. And again, we'll see how it goes. And we'll be getting public, uh, we'll be getting some feedback from the public. And we'll also be getting some feedback from local stakeholders in the village of Anmore and other areas to evaluate how the system went. 
and if we need to make some tweaks, we're absolutely open to doing that. But again, it was the first day of a brand new system. There are always kinks to work out. And so we're working on that. And that's one of the first things that we'll be working on today. Okay, good. And so what is the website then if people want to make this reservation to go to Bunsen Lake? What do they need to know? Yep. All you have to do, again, go to bchydro.com slash Bunsen. Uh, again, the reservation is only required if you are using a vehicle to access Bunsen Lake. If you are traveling by foot or other means of transportation, you do not need a reservation. It's business as usual. And we should also point out that transit's also a really good option. TransLink has increased bus service to Bunsen Lake. All right. Good to know. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Have a good It is an age-old problem that people complain about in neighborhoods all the time. And it really doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in. I will bet at some point you've complained about illegal dumping in the alley, in your backyard, in your front yard, wherever the case may be. You've probably seen it happen, and it probably drives you crazy. Well, in some areas of Surrey, it's gotten bad again. Joining us now for more on that is our contributor, Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, you know I grew up in Surrey, and I don't make it out there more than about once a month now, but I have noticed that legal dumping there has increased so much during the pandemic, and I'm not the only one. There's been an official report coming uh, out of the city of Surrey showing that illegal dumping is up 15% since the pandemic began, and based on their recent assessment, you know what they're finding, that it's uh, drywall, home renovation materials, furniture, appliances. And I wonder if it's not just, you know, folks doing a little bit of uh, spring cleaning around their own home, but maybe also uh, people who are working on developing new homes going, okay, let's just throw the, throw the waste wherever we can. I'm not sure. But uh, Scott Neumann, he's a Surrey's general manager of engineering. He worked on this report and he noted that the city of Surrey prior to 2015 responded to roughly 10 thousand illegal dumping incidents every year. Now that costed the city uh, $1 million annually annually to clean that all up. Now you noted that it this happens everywhere and it, it does. It happens in all municipalities, all cities, uh, but in some areas there's more like problem spots than others. So last night in Surrey, the council met and it, and it approved an enhancement of fines and enforcement. I am all for fines, Simi, and I and I'm especially for fines when they are enforced yes. because it's the only way. And there have been pockets of Surrey that I've driven through recently that I've just been alarmed and really actually saddened at seeing the extent to which illegal dumping has gotten out of control there. It really is shocking when you see what people will do. Like I know in in my neighborhood, the problem is that people put things out in the alley. And I know not in Surrey, there's not alleys everywhere. But in our neighborhood, they put things out in the alley, assuming somebody might want this. Someone will pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, weeks later when it's still there, it's like, no, I I think you better take care of that now. Uh, Versus, you know, some places where they're just, as you pointed out, just dumping to get rid of stuff, which I just find absolutely outrageous. That must be so frustrating for homeowners. Absolutely. Yeah. And when I see people throwing stuff out in the alley thinking someone's going to pick it up, it's like, come on, would you pick up someone else's mattress or someone else's like extremely broken bike that's all mangled up? No, like take it to the dump. And I wonder what goes through someone's mind. I don't want to shame here, but like seriously, it's a real question. What goes through one's mind when they're when they are putting stuff out in their alley thinking that someone else is going to. Oh, they just want to save the 
money. I can tell you exactly what it is. That to take that to the dump is going to cost you money. To get rid of it somewhere is going to cost you money. So they're just going to put it there and think on a, in a best case scenario, well, maybe somebody would like this. But really what they're trying to do is avoid money. Now, living in Delta for so many years, one of the great things that we had there, and Delta residents, you tell me if you're still doing this out of the city of Delta, but we did for many years, is that you had this uh, once a year, you had a, a free, essentially, um, stuff that you could put out for free. The city would come and take it because the dump oh, is, right. is in Delta. Yeah. Delta residents were allowed to do this. At once a year, the city would come and just take whatever garbage you had and haul it off for you. Um, and so that that was a benefit of having the the dump in the city where you live, right? Yeah. But I think it's the prohibitive cost sometimes of dumping fees, which makes people just go dump it somewhere and hope that it goes away. Yeah, in the meantime, a new Central Surrey Recycling and Waste Center is expected to open this summer, and it's going to give residents a chance uh, and businesses a chance to year-round, you know, drop off recycling and garbage. I really hope that that facility ends up playing a pivotal role in diverting some of this waste from the landfill because um, it's it's unacceptable how much of a problem this has become. And you know, you'll see it in sometimes unexpected pockets too, like uh, next to a golf course. Uh, uh, last weekend in Surrey, I noticed that some people had dropped off uh, some televisions from the, I don't know, 80s or 90s, along with mattresses. And we can't have CCTV cameras on every single corner in every part of Metro Vancouver. So uh, I think that with these uh, increased or rather enhanced fines and uh, the promise of enforcement that maybe, maybe potentially we could see it curbed. Well, you would hope, right? They already have a hotline. See, there's already a number for people to call if they see illegal dumping somewhere. They used to have in Surrey, and I don't know if the pandemic changed this, but they used to have like a, a one day junk drop off event. And people would line up like crazy to get into that. But maybe that changed because of the pandemic. So clearly people are just looking for a way to cut a few corners and save some bucks because our junk hasn't gone away. The ways to get rid of the junk has just gone away. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that the junk drop-off day was so busy. So that just goes to show you that people would save it up uh, in order to save a couple of bucks. Yeah. I shouldn't say a couple of bucks. It is expensive. It's a lot. It's it can ex- add up when you when you do take your stuff to the dump. Yeah, and it's like I say, it is everywhere. It is in Vancouver. It is in Surrey too. So, do you know what the fines are going to be? Have they said? Not just yet, um, and nothing yet on exactly how the enforcement would work. Now, I think some people, some individuals might be more deterred by fines than, say, a a larger business. Uh, So this will be interesting to see how it plays out. I would love to see the issue curbed, though, because it's become kind of sad. Oh, it's so sad out there. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal talking about illegal dumping. Yes, it's a problem. It's a multi-million dollar problem in Vancouver. It's a multi-million dollar problem in Surrey. It's probably a problem no matter what community you live in. And I'm curious if you've ever had to call your city, wherever you live, to say, hey, there's somebody has dumped this stuff here. How responsive has your municipality been to that? Do they come and take it away right away? Does somebody say, yes, okay, we're going to deal with that? Or do you find that it sits around and sits around? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Maybe there is 
one municipality or city out there that does a great job with illegal dumping. I would love to find out which place that is. Send me at CKNW. Now, we talk often about our iconic southern resident killer whales. We know they're endangered. We want to see what ways, what things that we can do to help. Well, now we're finding out they're also not getting enough to eat for prolonged periods of time. This was a UBC study that was done. So let's find out what is going on. Fanny Couture joins us now, lead author of the study and PhD candidate at UBC's Institute for Oceans and Fisheries and OceanWise. Fanny, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So what is going on? Why aren't these whales getting enough food? Well, that's actually a big question that is not investigated in our study, but there has been just this question of first trying to know whether they had enough food, and what we found is that they did not. Now, there could be several factors for it, um, including marine mammal predation, uh, fisheries pressure, although the fisheries levels are really low, but also other factors such as climate change or prevalence to diseases for those salmon population. So how can you tell they're not getting enough food? So what we did is that we compared how much energy they could technically get with how much energy they needed as individuals. And so we gathered data from different organizations in the U.S. and in Canada about salmon population to try to estimate the number of fish. And then we compared this number of fish with the energy that was needed for the whales. And we found out that they were in energetic deficit, meaning that they couldn't eat enough energy for six of the last 40 years. So does their behavior change? Like, can you tell from monitoring how far they're traveling or where they're going or what they're doing that they are in energy deficit? No, what we did is that we used an equation that allows us to model the way the predator is going to consume its prey and the rate at which the predator is going to eat its prey. Okay, so this would explain quite a bit, though, wouldn't it, Fanny? Because we've, we've wondered why this population doesn't seem to thrive, does it? Yes, no, absolutely. This population seems limited, and it's really baffling for scientists because we don't really know what's happening. But the food was definitely one of the main factors, and what we found in this study actually supports what previous research have found, that the whales are getting skinnier and losing their fat reserves, uh, which was suggesting that they were lacking food, and this is what our study showed for six of those last 40 years. Okay, so this is important information, then, if we want this population to thrive, I guess the question now is, Fanny, what do you do with this information? That's a very good point. So what do we do? I think the the key here is to try to focus more into researching what could be the cause for the decline of the salmon population that the whales are feeding on. You mentioned that it was six of the last 40 years that they seem to be an energy deficit then. So when were, like, when are these last six, when were these six years? Was it spread out over the 40 years or was it more recently? So three of them were kind of spread out, but it was more in recent years. And then three of them were 2018, 2019, 2020. So way more recently. But it is unclear right now what has happened over those three years. And I guess this is a, there's a need there for further research investigation for sure. So was it just this population you were looking at or did you look at other whale populations to compare it to? So it was only this population that we looked at just because there's really a sense of urgency because they're such a small population. But we are actually thinking, and that will be very interesting, to apply the same method that we use there for other resident populations, such as the northern resident skill whale population, which is doing much better than the southern. Right, because that would perhaps lead you to some more clues as to why it's happening here. 
Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's the hope. Okay, so then now what happens to this information, Fanny? Uh, I'm sorry, could you... So now, what, now that you've done this study and you've put it out there and it's getting a lot of attention, what are the next steps? What happens now? So the next steps will be to apply this same method to the northern residents and also to try to understand what has happened in recent years to the salmon populations that the southern residents are feeding upon. Okay, so this is such curious work. How did you get into doing this? Oh, that's a good point. Um, I just uh, I just worked for the Marine Mammal Research Program with OceanWise, and then I found out this project uh, with UBC, and, and there is the real sense of urgency on trying to understand what is happening to those whales, which are also such an iconic species of the west coast of Canada. Um, and so that, that's how I went into this project, and, and we started asking those questions. So how many whales are there in this population, and, and do we know how many kind of calories or how much food they need? So how many whales? Uh, at the moment, it's about 75 individuals. We actually, uh, there, there were two calves that were counted this season, which is uh, very exciting news. And so in average for an adult southern resident skill whale, there will be about 170,000 calories per day, which is about 85 times more what a human will consume. I can imagine that. Yeah, that seems about right. What that are they eating, though? Lot. <laughs> yeah, what are they eating, and at what times of year are they eating it? So they're eating mainly salmon species, so three different species. The the most important one being the Chinook salmon. They eat up to 90% of that Chinook salmon over the summer months, so July and August. But they also feed on the salmon species from the spring, so from May to October. And then their diet in the winter is a bit more unclear. We know that it's probably more diverse, uh, but this is why we didn't include the, the, the winter season in our study. They would feed on other fish species over the winter months. Okay, so should I guess theoretically then, shouldn't they be able to compensate if one particular type of salmon stocks are low? So that's, that's one of the aspects that this, uh, the study suggests, that they could switch to another species of salmon when Chinook are in low levels. But there is more and more evidence showing that they're really specialized into Chinook predation. So it's all a matter of behavior and whether they can learn and evolve and try to focus on other prey. Oh, that is so interesting. Fanny, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I think it's fair to say that the municipal elections that we have coming up this October would are, you know, fairly anticipated. I would even say highly anticipated in some communities where people are looking forward to casting their vote. I really hope that means higher turnout, but we have a lot to talk about in the months leading up to those elections this October. And people everywhere are letting their governments know that one of the, if not the biggest priority for them is housing and affordability. It's a new poll out of 2,000 adults from right across the region, and it showed that the top issue across the province ahead of these elections on October 15th is housing and homelessness. No surprise to our next guest. It's Jill Atke, who's the CEO of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Simi. I would imagine that's not a surprise to you to hear that people want to talk about housing. No, not at all. Election after election doesn't matter what uh, what level of government we uh, we hear consistently that housing affordability and homelessness are the top concern for voters. Yeah, it's interesting you say that though. Election after election, and I guess the real frustration that's growing here is that nothing seems to get done, does it? 
No, we've had significant investment from uh, from senior levels of government. Uh, municipalities are doing more and more around affordable housing, uh, but still we know from the numbers and a CMHC report out last week that much, much more needs to be done. And I think what the poll results show from last week is that voters are keeping that in mind as they head to the polls. To the extent that, you know, almost 40% of British Columbians rated housing and homelessness as their top concern. The the next uh, to- the next top concern was uh, healthcare at eighteen percent. So housing and homelessness homelessness is more than double that. I can understand why, though. Like from your perspective, how have you and your organization seen things get worse in the last few years? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we uh, know from our rental housing index uh, that looks at housing affordability of uh, small, mid-sized and large communities right across the country uh, that here in British Columbia, 250,000 renter households, not individuals, households are spending more than they can afford on rent, 125,000 of those. Folks are uh, are spending more than 50% of their income on rent, so that's a critical level uh, of overspending on rent, uh, meaning they're foregoing other basic necessities and um, and uh, at real risk of homelessness. And uh, and we know municipalities are concerned about this issue as well. Part of the polling that we can um, commissioned last week uh, was looking at five actions that municipalities can take to support nonprofit and co-op development in their community. We tested all five of those actions with the public right across the province and there was very very strong support for all all five of those actions so that's something that we'll be talking with uh with potential elected officials about about all throughout this uh this campaign period okay so do you think you can get a politician to commit to all five of those actions well, time will tell. We're, we're absolutely going to try it. We will be calling every single candidate uh, in the province, so elected or, or incumbents or, or new, um, uh, new, uh, new potential hopefuls, um, and we will be asking them to commit to all five of those actions and, and really straightforward things that some municipalities are already doing. We want to see more municipalities doing them. So it's things like streamlining permitting and rezoning processes to fast track the development of rental housing, uh, contributing public land to nonprofit and co-op housing developments for affordable homes, including affordable housing targets in their own plans to meet the unique needs of Indigenous people in their communities, Wave development cost charges for nonprofit and co-op housing developments. The public is saying we want our elected officials to commit to these actions uh, and then to follow through with it. And that's something we'll be doing as well. Once people have taken office, we're going to be paying attention to to make sure that, that they're following through on these commitments. Right. So some of them, though, are they all municipal or are some of them also, say, provincial or federal? These five particular actions are all things that municipalities can do to signal to senior levels of government, we want more investment into affordable housing in our communities. So all five of these actions are within the realm of, uh, of the municipal toolbox. And there's no question there is a much 
greater need for uh, deeper levels of investment from the province and from the federal government. And we, uh, we regularly have those conversations with senior levels of government. But what municipalities can do through these five actions is signal to government, we are ready, uh, we've made the right conditions uh, available for nonprofit and co-op housing in our community. We're ready for those investments and we're committed to acting quickly once those investments come through. You know, Jill, they often say that the municipal level of government is the one that's closest to people right? It's, mm-hmm. a, it's the one that you can actually probably get into contact with somebody uh, and talk to them about that. And I wonder, is that a positive or a negative when it comes to dealing with some of these issues, which many people, some people, they might be unpopular to do some of these things. And if it's the closest level of government, those politicians would definitely be hearing it from the public. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it does put municipalities in, in a tough spot sometimes. We see that in the polling results. Healthcare is the second uh, top concern for for voters. Well, healthcare, there aren't a lot of tools in the toolbox for municipalities, but that's in, within the realm of, of the province. That being said, something like affordable housing is one of the, the few social issues where municipalities can take real action. And that's what we wanted to test through the poll was whether or not there was public support for those actions. Uh, and what we saw is that, that there is public support and municipalities, uh, through education, I think, can, uh, can come around to, to making those commitment them, commitments themselves and readying themselves for investment from senior levels of government. And that's what we're hoping to see through the municipal election. Okay, so how do people, do you think, let their governments or let the people who are running know that they like these ideas? Part of the, that's part of the reason we did the polling so that we can take that to uh, to elected officials and uh, and and hopefuls as well and say here's the level of support that exists for these actions in your communities. As we get closer to the elections, we will also. Um, be issuing fact sheets. So we'll have those up on the housingcentral.ca website. Uh, So fact sheets that talk about housing affordability specific to your community. So whether you're living in Burnaby or Creston, those fact sheets will be specific to your community. And they'll include questions for, uh, for candidates if you're attending all candidates meetings. So that you can you can put a candidate on the spot and ask them what they're willing to do in order to ensure uh, better housing affordability in their communities. All right, that sounds. I think a lot of people would want to get involved with that. So then, once again, Jill, where can people find out more information? As we get closer to the election, so late August, we'll be uh, updating the HousingCentral.ca website, and more information will be available there. Sounds good. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Denise. Take care. You too. That's Jill Atke, CEO of BC Nonprofit Housing Association. Yes, we have these municipal elections coming up this fall, and they know that from polling done, housing, homelessness, that is the by far number one issue that people want municipal governments and candidates you know, to deal with. So how do you get them to pay attention to those issues and do what sometimes may seem like an unpopular thing to do, but in the long run is going to help provide more housing? That is the question, right? And, you know, a good question about the election too is, are you planning to get involved? Are you planning to vote? Are you looking forward to that election in your community so you can cast your vote?